The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by flight attendant and union leader, Sarah Nelson. Nelson has served as the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, otherwise known as the AFA, since 2014 where she represents over 50,000 employees at 19 different airlines across the country. The New York Times called her America's most powerful flight attendant for her work in the 35-day government shutdown of 2019. But that was really just the beginning, because in March of 2020, as the pandemic struck and demand for travel plunged, the aviation industry was facing a pretty grim future furloughs that would lead to layoffs until eventually airlines were forced to declare bankruptcy. But before those calamities could happen, Nelson jumped in. In a rare moment of unity, writes the New Yorker, airline executives and union leaders worked together to get government funding. By April of 2020, Congress allocated $50 billion to the airline industry as part of the CARES Act, which would keep aviation workers employed. If it weren't for Nelson brokering this deal with airline CEOs and Washington, it's hard to imagine the aviation industry surviving as it does today. In a recent interview, Nelson said, We paused the greed in aviation for a little while. Greed that ran rampant before COVID and left airlines understaffed. But that pause, according to Nelson and the AFA, is about to end as airlines hope to return to their old ways of stock buybacks and executive bonuses. And that is exactly where we begin our conversation for this special Labor Day episode. In our talk, we discuss the state of the AFA, Nelson's push to get Delta unionized, why traveling this summer has been so challenging, Sarah's personal history as a flight attendant, and why she's committed her life to fighting this fight on behalf of workers. This is Sarah Nelson. Sarah Nelson, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you too. How are you feeling today? I'm a little 
little tired, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, I've been on the road for seven days already, and I spent several days with Bernie Sanders talking to workers and big crowds. And Is it tiring spending that much time with Bernie? Not for me. <laughs> Bernie's like my union dad. He's he's great. You set me up for that. It's not my fault. <laughs> Actually, let me just deviate for a second, because I just want to say how great it is to travel with Bernie. There is so much love everywhere. And I have to say, I don't know that I have ever experienced that much spontaneous eruption of hope and excitement anywhere else that I've gone. And so, yes, I'm tired because it was a lot. There's a lot of being on. There's a lot of, you know, quick moving. He sort of moves like an 18-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a lot of energy from it, too, because so many people got so excited and uh, genuinely excited about somebody that they know is telling them the truth. It's one of the reasons I like him so much. And I really think if he runs for president again, he should use the quote, moves like an 18-year-old. <laughs> he just might. He just might. <laughs> okay. So with Labor Day weekend here, I think we have to start with the work you're doing right now as the president of the AFA, which is a union representing flight attendants at United, Alaska, Hawaiian, and uh, about 19 other airlines. There you go. Now, chances are people listening to this have had some experience with one of those airlines this summer. And it's likely that that experience has not been very pleasant. I think that's a diplomatic word. In the last three months, we've seen record delays, endless cancellations, flights being understaffed, flight attendants and pilots overworked, the list goes on. So why don't we start here? How do you account for the last three months in air travel? <laughs> the problems in air travel are actually very similar to the stats in 2019, if you look at that. And so some of this is, you know, we've forgotten what it's like to see an aviation system that is stretched all the way because all of the problems that we're experiencing, certainly we have the COVID hangover and the continued uh, COVID cases that increase sick leave and all of those things. But what happened was prior to 2020, the airline industry was coming off of the bankruptcies following 9-11 and then the mergers, and they did everything that they could to increase productivity so that there was about one worker for every two pre-9-11 doing the jobs at the airport and on the planes. So they were running the operation with an incredible amount of overtime and pushing staffing down to its lowest levels. So we used to have 25 to 50 percent more staffing domestically to cover the operation. Just more people on the job at the same time. I'm not even talking about the number of flight hours each person or hours each person is working. But this operation got stretched to the thinnest it's ever been. And that was so that they could send $39 billion in stock buybacks with the top four airlines alone between 2014 and 2019. And so they were taking all of that cash and moving it to Wall Street rather than investing in the workers on the front lines and the operation. But how do you think COVID has changed this conversation around airlines? Actually, as we moved into COVID, people were pissed and, you know, not actually thinking very rationally about it because they were so mad at the airlines for how they were treating people. You know, you walk through first class and then you walk through normal seating and then you walk to a space where you should just be happy to have your ass on the plane. And people were really, really angry because they were experiencing the incredible inequality that they experience in their lives and seeing it and experiencing it visibly on a plane. And when the airlines were going to look for federal funding to keep the airlines in place, because, I mean, I'm telling you that when demand drops 97 percent and you're a high cash business, they weren't even going to make payroll. Some of them a couple weeks, a couple months. So they had to talk to us. And we had a plan to say, you know, this is not going to be a typical bailout where you just give a bunch of cash to the companies and they figure out how to spend it. And then they go ahead and furlough a bunch of people and everybody gets hurt anyway. And usually the executives walk away with big bonuses. So we said, no, this is going to be a workers first package. All the money that comes from the federal government has to go to the pay and benefits of people on the front lines. There can be no furloughs. There can be no cut in pay. 
And we also are going to put some constraints on the companies. You're going to have to continue to serve every single community in the United States because we're keeping that infrastructure in place for a reason. And also, you can't have any stock buybacks for up to a year after the relief period ends. And there has to be a cap on executive compensation, too. And so that stock buyback ban ends on September 30th of this year. And we're continuing a program right now to say no stockbuybacks.org. Anybody can go there and take action uh, because they shouldn't put one dollar over to Wall Street while these operational problems are still existing. They should be investing in the front lines and fixing the operational problems for the American public. For people who don't totally understand the concept of stock buybacks, how do you explain it? Stock buybacks are essentially cash given to the shareholders to to inflate the share price. Like if people know that uh, there's going to be stock buybacks coming, (laughs) they're going to invest in the airline or whatever business it is. So it's really kind of bullshit because it has nothing to do with how the business is actually operating. And you can have a business actually not even making a profit and offering share buybacks to the shareholders to inflate the share price for a short period of time while destroying the business. You mentioned this kind of remarkable deal where you come to the table with five CEOs of major airlines and basically get this federal pandemic aid to pass, which saves all kinds of jobs, keeps the industry afloat, and is this remarkable coming together moment (laughs) between the two of you. That moment to me proved that the union and the airlines can work towards a common goal. But in 2022, what does that dialogue between you and these CEOs sound like? Well, let's be really clear that the CEOs also have to answer to their masters, <laughs> uh, their funders. And in unchecked capitalism, which is what we're living in right now, it's only about the profit. So what is our relationship? I mean, it's respectful because they know AFA has power. Certainly, I formed some relationships working directly with CEOs. So that makes a difference. Yeah, relationships make a difference. But fundamentally, it's not about like voting for some union leader who has great relationships with people. Those relationships are power-based. And if you're not constantly organizing and showing that the work group is ready to take action, the work group is ultimately ready to withhold their labor. I mean, that's the the biggest blow. But they're ready to speak up and be organized and hold them accountable. Then, you know, they, they have other constituencies that they listen to and are required to listen to and uh, takes their time and energy. And so it never goes away, the need to organize, the need to show the power of labor. And if you're not doing that, then those relationships don't really matter at all. And yet that night where you go into D.C. and and you broker this deal with those CEOs, did any part of you, maybe I'm being naive, but did any part of you think maybe down the line we could do this again? You're smiling sort of mischievously, so I'm assuming no. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's a good example because one of the things that union busters say is that uh, unions are just there to destroy the business. You know, this is a line that sort of dupes a lot of workers into thinking that if they're choosing the union, they're against their company. And the fact of the matter is that it's usually the workers who stick around. I mean, I, I have seen eight CEOs in my life at United Airlines and they come and go. But I mean, I think that we have to recognize that these people are criminals. So we have to like really call them out in that way. And I'm, what I'm talking about is Howard Schultz here and, and Jeff Bezos, who are running rampant over their workers' rights. And they're violating the law. There's just no way to hold them accountable to it. Back to the airlines. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you that the airline that worked the closest with us and worked the hardest on getting this relief through was American Airlines. And and the people who are there, they have a belief that they should work with their unions. That is the view of the executives who are in control right now. And that is a very different view than most other corporate entities. And it makes a difference when, when there's executives there that just respect the fact that a union's there, even if that respect comes from that power base that I was talking about, 
then there's an ability to get to a table and solve problems. And that is their view, is that talking to the unions actually helps to solve problems. If you look at what is happening with the airline industry in the United States and then what's happening in Europe where they laid everybody off, it is night and day. Yeah, we've had this conversation about the delays and all of that and the cancellations. But we're talking about between 2 and 5% when it was at its worst. Whereas in Europe, they had a complete collapse of the entire program. And they're telling people, don't even come here. We can't handle it. We can't handle the service. So, you know, we can point to this as a real success story. And I think that, you know, you can say all the right things. You can be academic as you want about it. At the end of the day, all of those are good arguments, but they're only going to be heard if you back that up with the power of the workers standing together. Well, let's move from theoretical arguments to real life experience, because throughout this pandemic, airline workers, like all essential workers, have had to risk their bodies and health for the sake of a paycheck. We all know this. And, and yet, since coming back to work, the Federal Aviation Administration reported a record 7,000 unruly passengers since 2021. Why do you think we've seen such an uptick in aggression towards flight attendants in the last two years? Well, look, it started just prior to the pandemic. We had people who were sexually harassing flight attendants and sexually assaulting flight attendants and telling the police that it was okay to do it because the president could do it and the president got away with it. So that's one example. But then going into the pandemic, it was all about being divided rather than united and driving this idea that we're at odds with each other. And certainly the mask mandate was a flashpoint. The entire pandemic was completely politicized and set up to try to divide people in this country. We always see what's happening socially and politically in the country on our planes. It always plays out. And so the outbursts and the refusal to respond to any kind of authority, any kind of rules, that was all driven by the political discussion coming from people in leadership positions. And even after the election, when Joe Biden won, you had that continue. You had that continue with rhetoric from people like Ted Cruz. That's what happened was people were led to believe that we are at odds with each other. They were led to believe that any rules or anyone trying to enforce rules was an infringement upon their rights. And we saw that play out on our planes. And it wasn't until DOJ prosecuted and people started landing in jail that the behavior started to wane. And that kind of strict uh, repercussions for people acting that way, we knew and we said from the beginning was necessary in order to stave this off. Do you think it's getting better? It's getting better. But I mean, the conditions in air travel, let's face it, it's not a great experience. And you've got a lot of humanity packed in together at a small space. And it just is uh, ripe for all kinds of conflict. Flight attendants do an amazing job because thousands of flights take off and land without event. And uh, they're trained in de-escalation, and they typically are very good at sort of conducting the entire process in a, in a, a very efficient way. But there's fewer of us and more of the public than ever, and uh, seats are closer together than ever before. And so it has gotten better, frankly, since those sentencings, but the conditions are still really tough. And every time that there's an operational meltdown, sometimes it's not even the airline's fault. And sometimes it's because we're not taking off because it's unsafe. But people get frustrated and there's a ripple effect. And all of that is a recipe for conflict and uh, disturbances and people getting angry and ultimately sometimes leading to violence. But the history of the conditions for flight attendants is checkered with all kinds of sexism. Through the 1970s and 80s, flight attendants had age limits had to retire by 32. Even before that time, they were not allowed to get married. There were even strict rules dictating how they could look, how much they could weigh. As someone entrenched in the history and future of flight attendants, what do people maybe not understand about this profession in those early years? Number one, this was a place where women could work. So Let's remember that women had to fight to even get into the workplace. Ellen Church was the very first flight attendant, and she was actually a commercial airline pilot. 
when she was not allowed to work in the cockpit because the airlines told her that women were too emotional to be in the cockpit. Then she said, because she really wanted to be in aviation, she said, well, I'm a registered nurse too. You should have women in the cabin to take care of the passengers because at that time they were flying at lower altitudes. There was a lot more bumpy air. People got sick a lot. There's never been a flight that I haven't gotten sick on. I just want to tell you. Oh, wow. Okay. I can't wait for you to be my passenger. Um, So (laughs) anyway. Right um, after this podcast, we're going to get on the plane together. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway, so she, she successfully argued to start the career for flight attendants. And and a lot of airlines bucked up against it, but United Airlines did agree to start the career of flight attendant. And they hired eight stewardesses. And very soon, the executives learned that, oh, you know, men really like having women in the cabin. And then it became a job that was sexualized. But I just want to put a fine point on this here. What Ellen Church really did was say, oh, okay, you say I'm too emotional to be in the flight deck, so why don't you put me in the cabin so they can take care of the emotional men during the flight? I just, uh, very clearly, women had to fight to make this a job, make this a career, and as you noted, fight through all of that discrimination to be able to stay on the job after the age of 30 or 32, depending on what the airline's cutoff was, whether or not they got married, got pregnant, and they had to step on a weigh scale until 1993. At the same time, live through, you know, incredible objectification and sexualization of our work. We were treated with absolute disdain because of that. It wasn't really until the Me Too movement that we got to really talk about the fact that flight attendants had never been recognized with any kind of respect whatsoever in our industry. We um, battled with big tobacco, too bad for them, and won the first place to get smoking out of our workplace. And we took on these battles never thinking that it was going to be a problem if we lost because we didn't have anything to lose. We were always fighting just to be where we could be. And so I come from this incredible history in my union of having to be a scrappy fighting union every step of the way. And I am really grateful that that is my upbringing in the labor movement, because while labor was going through a wilderness of, quote unquote, labor peace, um, my union never experienced that. It was always a struggle. I want to understand your entry point into all of this. So. By the mid-90s, some of these conditions had mildly improved. I'm going to go with mildly improved. Yeah. In 1995, you graduate from college with $45,000 of student debt. Yes. You spend the next year waiting tables, selling linens, substitute teaching, temping at an insurance company in St. Louis. In early 1996, while working at the California Pizza Kitchen. (laughs) Shout out to CPK. Okay. Go on. Shout out to CPK. Look, (laughs) they're not advertisers on this show, but maybe they are now. You receive, sorry, you receive, you receive a phone call from your friend, Chloe, who just started working as a flight attendant. She encourages you to maybe do the same. That next day after the call, you take a five hour drive from St. Louis to Chicago, where United was holding a recruitment event. As you're driving into the city with your Barbra Streisand mixtape blasting. (laughs) In fairness, it was Neil Diamond, too. What's going through 22, 23-year-old Sarah's head? I was was thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm supposed to teach next year. I can't abandon the kids. Um, I, I, but I'm going to go try this out. I, you know, I really... I really had my whole life in front of me, but what made me get in the car and drive there was the fact that I really didn't know how I was going to make it all work. I really did not know how I was going to set up my classroom in inner city St. Louis and make it a place where kids could feel respected and loved and appreciated and encouraged. Um, That was really, really important to me. And I didn't know how I was going to be able to spend the money that I needed to to have the resources in that classroom to support them. Um, I didn't know I was going to pay down that $45,000 of student debt. I didn't know how I was going to be able to sleep again because I knew that the teaching job was not going to pay enough for rent. So I was going to have to keep waiting tables. I just thought, you know, maybe this will be a chance for me to put my feet in the sand like Chloe is. And uh, 
we'll see how this goes. And how did it go in those early months? Well, it's quite a process to get hired as a flight attendant. So I went to what we call the cattle call uh, that day. And it was a couple months later that they called me back. And now they sent me a plane ticket to fly from St. Louis to Chicago to go to the second interview. And I remember people standing in line at both of these interviews actually crying, so anxious about this interview and so excited to be a flight attendant. And this is a world that I wasn't exposed to at all. A lot of them had family members who had already been in the industry or had already been flight attendants, and they had dreamed their whole lives about becoming one. You know, I didn't have that same experience. I actually remember standing in line thinking, oh my gosh, I'm really glad that I don't feel this kind of pressure (laughs) because that would really suck going to this interview. The same kind of pressure that you seem to feel about teaching. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what I trained to do, right? I had hoped to do a really good job being a teacher. But here I was doing something that I didn't really know anything about other than what Chloe had described. Standing there as she reports in her bikini with her feet in the sands at the payphone calling me and razzing me about the fact that I was in cold St. Louis working my ass off. And she described the contents of our union contract. She described the pay. She described the working conditions, the flexibility, the health care. Oh, and dental, by the way, we didn't really have to fight for dental, which is funny. Airlines wanted us to have good teeth. No surprise there. That wasn't a hard one at the bargaining table. It is today, but it wasn't then. Always on the job. You can't help it. <laughs> I can't it's like help you're it. trying to negotiate with me. <laughs> you know, I'm recording in a closet, right? I can't do anything. But maybe your <laughs> listeners can. Damn um, right. So <laughs> yeah. So and and I remember you know, that phone call. And that's really why I drove up there. And the idea that I could go do something. And if it didn't work out, then I'd go back to teaching. If it did work out, I knew that the thing that really got me to drive there that day was that you could retire at age 50. And I thought, wow, you know, our moms are 50. Like, they're young. We can we can do something else if we want to do something else then. So I just thought I wasn't really making a big decision to change my whole life. I just thought I was taking a chance on something that hopefully would give me a little relief. Once you take that chance and you land the job at United, you end up living in Boston in an apartment with seven other rookie flight attendants. But your introduction to the union comes during your first week of work. You're in flight talking to a flying partner that has worked as an attendant for 35 years. Do you remember that conversation? Yes. And actually, it was thankfully, before we were actually in flight, just as we were walking to the plane for the first time to work my very first flight. And we had just come out of the office uh, where we check in. And the two flight attendants I was working with were arguing with a supervisor over how how we were going to work this flight. Um, And they were arguing the contract provision that was in place. And, you know, it got a little heated, but they won. (laughs) And This flight attendant who had been flying for 35 years, she was pretty crusty, I would say. (laughs) She had been through it. Uh, Gorgeous, as they say, well coiffed, um, very put together. But she pulled me aside and she realized that that had maybe been a bit jarring coming out of training and just before I worked my first flight. And she said, (laughs) in an attempt to try to cajole me, she said, listen, management thinks of us as their wives or their mistresses. And in either case, they hold you in contempt. (laughs) And I was like, "Woo, okay." And then she said, your only place of worth is with your fellow flying partners. And if you wear your union pin and we stick together, there's nothing we can't accomplish. When she got to the end there, that was a little more comforting, but I didn't totally get it. It wasn't until later that I looked back on that conversation and really understood how much truth there was in that and how much she basically described the entire flight attendant profession and the progression of our union over the 50 years uh, before I started flying, just with those few sentences. Welcome to the job. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) There is, of course, one more event a few weeks later when you don't receive your paycheck. So that was an event where I learned to stand with my flying partners and and really learn to have each other's backs. Um, She definitely ground that into my head. 
But I didn't really understand how much that meant or what it could do for me because uh, about uh, three weeks later, my roommates got their first paycheck and I didn't get a paycheck. I checked my bank account and I was down to $12. So the response I got was, well, people get their first paychecks at different times for different reasons and we're sure you get it next time. And I remember like screaming in my head, you don't understand. I have $12 in my bank account. What are you thinking? You've got to help me right now. But I went back to those uh, six weeks in training and thought about what they told me about probation. And I said, okay, and tried to go make it work for another two and a half weeks until the next pay period and prayed for reserve assignments. Those are the assignments that you don't know you're going to get as a flight attendant, but you just get them last minute. And I knew if I could get on an airplane, there would be food and I could at least eat that way. Also, maybe had a couple days. I was 23 and cute and, you know, on planes with people who had a lot of money. And so, yeah, thanks for dinner. Bye. Um, (laughs) So uh, that helped to make it through, too. But I also got, you know, real friendly with Top Ramen and made it through to that next payday. And actually, I remember I came home from a reserve assignment and the van driver in Boston would take the crew to the hotel that was laying over and then would take the local flight attendants home to our houses, which was so nice. But the custom was to give a dollar to the van driver. And we I reached in my pocket. I I was down to one quarter. And I said to him, I'm sorry, this is this is my last quarter. And he's like, yeah, right. See you later. (laughs) I was mortified. And I went into that apartment with all these other women and there was nobody home, no food in the cupboard. So the next morning I put on my flight attendant uniform, used that T-pass to get to the airport again, jumpsuit to Chicago and back so I could eat some more plain food. And when I landed, checked my bank account and now it's down to zero. So I went straight down into the office and said, somebody's got to help me. I didn't get my first paycheck. And they said, well, you get your first paycheck at different times. For I mean, they started giving me the same rhetoric. And I was like, oh, my God, I am just a number. This is what it feels like to just be a number. And I can't eat. And I did start to get too excited or more excited than someone on probation should. And the tears started to roll. And all of a sudden, I had this tap on the shoulder and uh, turned around. I can still see this moment clear as day. And there was someone standing there who I'd never seen before, but she looked a lot like me. And she was holding her checkbook and asked me how to spell my name. She handed me a check for $800. And she said, "Um, number one, go take care of yourself. And number two, call our union. And I did call my union. And I had my paycheck the very next day. But I always tell everyone that I learned everything that I needed to know in that moment when she was standing in front of me, because in our unions, we're never alone. And through our unions, we can take care of each other the best and make the most out of that care. So that's what got me involved. And the union called me the next day and said, hey, uh, we helped you out. Do you want to help your union out now and get involved? And I was like, you want me to help? I had no idea that people said no. And I was so flattered. (laughs) (laughs) So I got involved right away. And then we negotiated a contract that I hated. I worked against that. I was a dissident. And um, that is what started my union career. I was just a loud mouth uh, with a strong sense of justice. And that's why we have you here. (laughs) After the break, more from Sarah Nelson. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea. 
and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Come 2001, you started devoting a lot of time to union work, becoming the VP of your local council. But as you referenced earlier, everything about the job and the culture seems to shift on 9-11. That day, you take an overnight flight from the West Coast to O'Hare, landing at 5.30 in the morning. You then go straight to the Hilton Hotel and take a nap at the fitness center. Is that right? Yes, on the massage table that wasn't being used at 5.30 in the morning. At a little after 8 a.m., a hotel employee wakes you up to tell you the news. You leave the room, find a TV, and watch as another plane crashes into that second tower. How do you hold that day 20 years later? Well, first and foremost, I was woken up. It was all over the news. And at the time, they were saying a Cessna crashed into the World Trade Center. Um, so I got up a little groggy, and I'm watching the TV, and I'm thinking, wow, Cessna made that much damage? And then pretty soon they're saying, no, it was American Airlines. And even though it wasn't United, it wasn't my company, um, I just remember my heart sinking. Um, and then, you know, to watch the next plane crash, um, 
it was very clear that we were at war. So even before I knew that it was the flight that I worked all the time, United Flight 175 from Boston to L.A., and it was all these people that I worked with and loved. And I just remember thinking that the world is never going to be the same again. And it certainly wasn't. And as the day went on and I found out just how close to home this was. You knew a lot of the crew members on board of Flight 175, didn't you? Yeah, all of them. And the two customer service agents who were going on vacation. Was one of those Jesus Sanchez? Yes, Jesus. Jesus and Marianne both worked all the time. They worked overtime hours. They were known and loved by everyone in the base. And Jesus, I used to joke with him, he would send me off, close the door and say goodbye uh, right before we would roll away from Boston. And he'd be there when I came back. And so I would say, all gates lead to Jesus. And uh, yeah, I knew everyone really well. And I can see all of them now. I can hear their voices. I can see their smiles. I can see the way that they would comfort other people and take care of other people and take a lot of pride in their jobs. I like that story, that one. I appreciate Thank you. Um, there's a lot of people who go through a crisis in their lives, and sometimes they get involved in national tragedies. This is mine. In 2012, when the TSA tried to put knives back on the planes because they said that they needed to focus on looking for bombs instead, and so they said it was an actual need for it to change homeland security policy, and we were fighting them because it was little blades that cost the lives of 3,000 people, but then also created you know the loss of hundreds of thousands of people losing their, their homes and their pensions and their healthcare and all the hurt that came from that. And we fought. I remember being up on Capitol Hill and being in a Senate office and, and going through very clearly what the dangers were of changing this policy and allowing knives back on the planes. And by the way, there's a knife lobby, believe it or not, that was lobbying to have this change in place so that they could sell little pocket knives to travelers that would have on one end a USB port and on the other end the deadliest knife that you could get through TSA is how they were already advertising this. So I'm in this office and talking about talking with the air marshals and FBI agents and all these people who said this was a really bad idea. And the Senate staffer, when I get over making this very well-informed argument, um, reaches over and rubs my forearm and says, I know this is a very emotional issue for you. And I was thinking in my head, well, I could stab you right now, but they took my knife when I came into your workplace, asshole. But I did not say that. <laughs> I had to regroup. And I went back to the CWA building and I talked to Larry Cohen, who is the president of the Communications Workers of America at the time. And I said, Larry, this isn't about knives. This is about sexism. They're not going to listen to us. And how the fuck am I supposed to fight sexism? And keep these knives off the plane and honor my friends and, and keep everyone safe and not allow this horrible thing to happen. He said, Sarah, your friends died, right? And I said, yeah, Larry, my friends died. I'm not ever going to let anyone forget. And he said, that's right. You go back up there and you tell those assholes, listen, motherfucker, my friends died and I am not leaving this place until we change this policy. So you better damn do it right now. And a week later, we won. And so, you know, from that experience, frankly, everything that I've learned, every action that I take, the way that it's important to work with urgency, and also to tell women everywhere that if any man or anyone tells you that you should put your emotions in check or that um, showing emotions means that you're weak, it's fucking bullshit. OK, emotions are our superpower. And what it really means when we show them is that we're going to fight like hell for the people that we love. And when we feel them and that's authentic and you really, you know, are able to streamline that, you can actually act with urgency and act with real purpose and get things done. And so and that's what women do everywhere. Um, and I often tell this story to encourage women uh, to take ownership of the fierceness with which they feel like they have to fight for the people that they love. What's most infuriating, I think, and I could hear it in your voice 
right there as, as you are rallying people to activate, to act. What's most infuriating and heartbreaking is that eight days after the attacks, as demand for airline tickets plunged, United announced plans to let go of 20% of its workers. At the end of 2002, United declared bankruptcy. By then, you had become the national spokesperson for the United chapter of the AFA. But I want to revisit one day a few months later, where your boss at the union calls you into his office to tell you that another 2,300 flight attendants were about to be furloughed. Yeah, I remember we tried to stay out of bankruptcy. The Air Transportation Stabilization Act provided for loan guarantees for airlines to be able to reorganize outside of bankruptcy and um, have these loans and pay them back to the government. And that loan was denied for United Airlines, even though the workers had taken, um, had agreed to concessions as part of the application for that loan. It was denied by the Bush White House. So we ended up in bankruptcy instead. Before that, I had always been thinking, okay, how much longer do we have to fight this hard? Because I was going into the union office at seven in the morning every day and leaving at 1 a.m., going to my apartment, being so wound up with all the crap that we were going through and all the bad news that we had to report. And I just remember thinking, like, how much longer do I have to do this? It's going to be okay. a couple more months, a couple more months. And at that moment, it was just like, this isn't going to stop. It's going to keep happening. And I just needed a minute to just take that in and cry and recognize that I was never going to let him get away with it. I was never going to give up. And this is what I was going to do. And we were going to have to fight like hell in the worst of conditions to hang on to as much as we possibly could so that we would have enough strength to fight for what we really deserved, to really fight back and fight for what we deserved. And so it was in that moment that I had that recognition and knew that this was my life's mission. When you and I look back on this period post 9-11, it's impossible to not see the parallels between then and 2020 in the last two years. After 9-11, you said, flight attendants lost their homes. Many of them lost their marriages over financial stress. In some cases, they had to move in with family members to make ends meet. Those were lives that were dramatically changed. And some of those people are still flying right now. And we don't forget that. You can't just redefine the value of a person like that. So we've got long memories and a lot of anger. Yeah. Is that the guiding force in 2022 as you move forward? No. I mean, you can't... So, you know, I read Sun Tzu and... Sun Tzu would, would uh, definitely not counsel you to let the anger guide you. I think that the anger and the emotion and the outrage is really important. What leads me forward is love. It has to be because you have to heal. You have to provide people with hope. You have to provide people with a way forward and the knowledge that actually you can make it better. There is a possibility to get results. And anger can also get in the way of being strategic. So the outrage and the anger is necessary and it should never go away. But I would never allow that to guide me because at the times when I have just let that loose, I have regretted it. Like when? I think luckily those times have been out of view of the public for the most part. <laughs> and uh, I've been able to re recalibrate. Oh, Sarah, the politician, walk in suddenly. Is this, is, this is the most political. <laughs> I've been able been to <laughs> recalibrate in a not so public way. Uh huh. But yeah, I mean, when I've let the anger just roll forward and I've done something or I've I've just been so angry that somebody, you know, has been sitting on their ass doing nothing and then complaining about it. And I've called them out, you know, uh, when they've when they've complained more. And it never it never ends well because you don't move that person to action. In fact, you move them to be more against you. And um, and other people are watching, too. And they don't you know, they want somebody to lead them forward. They don't want someone pushing people down. As someone leading this labor movement, I think sitting on your ass is maybe the last thing I can imagine you ever doing outside of sitting on this podcast. <laughs> so much so that 
I believe you've had two hip surgeries in the last year and a half. Yeah. So I have to ask you, how do you keep going? You know, this was a real test. Uh, it was a real test because before this year, I have never been totally down and out. I just, I have never been able to just not push through and keep going when I needed to until this year. Uh, and that was a real shocker. Actually, after the second hip surgery, when I was still on heavy painkillers, I would I was still doing media interviews like through that time. I would plan it out with my communications people. Okay, we got to take it like 20 minutes after I take the heavy painkiller, but you have to cut it off after an hour because that's when it's really going to cut in and I'm probably going to say something really stupid. So <laughs> it was rough. And But what I always say actually is that every struggle in my life has made me a better human and has made me a better leader and has made me be able to empathize with people and the struggles that they go through. And they might not be the exact same struggles, but every single time I learn something new about myself, which allows me to then relate to other people. And I think, you know, the more that you can glean from that and understand what other people struggle through, the more likely that you're able to connect with them, communicate with them, help define the problem, whatever problem it is that they are encountering, so that we can get a result. Because the first thing that you have to do in order to tackle anything that's wrong is clearly define the problem or the issue so that you can then set the demands to get the result. So this year sucked. I'm still working through all the things that I learned from it, frankly. But I'm going to be probably a better person and a better leader for having gone through it. One of the major problems that the AFA is focusing on for the rest of 2022 is the unionization of Delta. Can we talk about this for a second? Oh, yeah, please. One of my favorite subjects. Are you going to yell at me again? <laughs> I'm not going to yell at you. You're talking about my favorite subject. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> now, Delta purports to pay higher hourly rates than most other airlines. They've also recently introduced boarding pay to make sure attendants are paid when the airplane doors open and passengers are filling in. Most other airlines do not pay their flight attendants for that period of work. What is your pitch to these employees as Delta continues to fight back against unionization? Delta gets to control how often you get paid your flight hours. And that relates to everything. That relates to your health care, your uh, retirement. That relates to your sick time. That relates to your vacation. And these are all areas where they cheat people. And they have retain total control over what the conditions are at work. Not to mention the fact that you don't have any job security. So you don't have any due process at work. You don't have any fairness. People get fired without any reasons or Delta will bring you into a room without any representatives. You can't record it or anything. And they'll tell you why they're firing you. And then they send you a letter that says we're firing you for the reasons that we discussed. So they don't ever have to put anything in writing. And Delta, because they can control everything, actually has been able to make billions and billions of dollars more than any other airline. The fact of the matter is that they don't pay their flight attendants the most. That pay scale may say one thing at the top of the pay scale, but it depends on how often you're getting that hourly rate. So when flight attendants go to work, yeah, we're not paid for every hour that we're on the job. We're not. And when Delta announced that they were going to pay for boarding, they said, well, we're going to pay you half time. And for exactly 40 minutes. So if you're sitting longer, if you're waiting for the pilots, if there is a weather delay, if there's a mechanical delay, you're not getting more than that 40 minutes at that half hourly rate. Once again, Delta is setting all the terms. That's not something that the flight attendants negotiated. And a couple of years ago, they made uh, they decided to change the way that flight attendants are paid so that we don't have the kind of flexibility that made me to drive to Chicago from St. Louis um, after I heard about it. They have to work within every two weeks. One of the one of the great advantages of being a flight attendant is being able to arrange your schedule so that you can be a student or you can um, take care of your kids or you can have these other things that you do in your life. And that flexibility was totally taken away from Delta flight attendants so that if you don't meet those scheduling parameters, you don't get any benefits. So Delta carries all the cards. And when I go to the table with United Airlines, for example, and they're costing out what they're competing against other carriers with, guess what? It makes a difference that Delta doesn't have a union. 
Because they say, look, it's already $100 million less a year that Delta pays for its workforce than the same size workforce at United Airlines. And we have major risk here because tomorrow, if something goes wrong with Delta, they can change it overnight. But we have to negotiate with you. So Delta undercuts our jobs all the time. Maybe some people have not gone through the, the mistreatment at Delta. And Delta spends a ton of money on union busting and talking about we're a family and all this stuff. As someone said to me recently at a union rally, they said, yeah, I love my family, but my parents made me work for free. So uh, I don't think I really want to be a family at work. Thanks very much. So, um, you know, it's a different time um, with everyone talking about union organizing, everyone talking about inequality, people relating to each other about how corporations are just cheating people out of everything that they deserve for their work. And this is the time that Delta flight attendants are going to be successful in organizing. And we're going to do everything that we can to support them in doing that because it matters for them and it matters for us. Do you think they'll be unionized by the end of this year? I think that because of the process under the Railway Labor Act that they won't be fully unionized by the end of the year. But I do think that we will file for an election by the end of the year. And part of that act is because... The petitions expire after one year? Yeah. So under the Railway Labor Act, you do not qualify for an election if you file with less than a majority support in the workplace, which means that as Delta is also hiring new hires all the time, and we may get up to as much as 24,000 by the end of the year, that we have to file with a supermajority because they're also going to come back and say, oh, these supervisors belong on the list and they're going to mess with, you know, who's eligible and whatever. So we're not going to cut it close. And we have to have um, signed authorization cards. These This cannot be an electronic signature. Physically signed. Yeah, physically signed. So at Amazon and Starbucks, as an example, these are the campaigns people are aware of and watching. You can sign an electronic card and you can qualify to trigger an election with just 30 percent support in the workplace. So we have the added hurdle of a majority supporter over 50 percent and a physically signed card with a mobile workforce flying all over the world at any given time. Big picture as we leave between October 2021 and March of 2022, union representation petitions increased 57% from the same period a year ago. A Gallup poll conducted last September showed 68% of Americans approved of labor unions, the highest rate since 71% in 1965. Do you think we're entering a new era where unions may thrive once more in this country? I think that the only way that this country... retains its democracy is if workers are successful in forming unions. And I think that it is an urgent time because right now we have someone in the White House who is willing to talk about the importance of unions, at least. And we don't have an active campaign from the government working against unions. I think that there's more that this administration, a lot more this administration can be doing to be supporting that union activity, like calling Howard Schultz and Jeff Bezos to the White House and saying you are going to negotiate with your workers who have um, signed up for collective bargaining and voted for their union. But yeah, we have to do it. It is imperative that we use this moment where people are looking around and saying no one has made it possible for my kids' lives to be any better. No one um, has made it possible for me to actually live on an earth where I'll be able to breathe and drink water and not uh, burst into flames. We have to take on the problem in our democracy right now. And the problem is that money is controlling our democracy. So all these popular things like, you know, healthcare for everyone, um, like taking on the climate crisis, like having affordable housing that is somewhere near where you go to work. These are all things that are really popular with the public and can't seem to get done in Washington because money is controlling the political process. And so the only way to change that is to tackle capitalism where it exists, at the corporations, at these for-profit industries. We have to organize like crazy in order to have enough power to make them risk-averse enough to act like they can be shamed 
I, I don't actually believe they, they can be shamed, but they don't want the public to think that they can't be shamed. We have to put them in a position where they think the risk is high enough that not doing the deal with labor is a higher risk than doing the deal with labor. And that comes down to workers organizing and exercising that power, like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. In order to take on the issues, the critical issues of today, and in order to put capitalism in check so that we can have a flourishing democracy, we have to organize like crazy and organize in the tens of millions in the next couple of years. My last thing for you. In 1970, writer Jeremy Brecker wrote a book called Strike. In 2020, they re-released the book. In that, you wrote the preface. And there's a passage from that that I thought maybe we'd leave on, if you wouldn't mind reading it. Great. Yes. Okay. Here we go. Oh, you want me to read it? No, no one needs me reading it. (laughs) We have the chance in this moment not to rebuild yesterday's union movement, but to look forward and build a labor movement for today. Okay, no, I'm not nailing it because I like really believe my own bullshit. <laughs> As people say, uh, it's it's not bullshit, but um, I really believe this stuff. So um, let me try to do it without uh, getting emotional. So we have the chance in this moment not to rebuild yesterday's union movement, but to look forward and build a labor movement for today. One that reflects today's workplace and today's society. One founded in mutual respect and dignity, a future with good union jobs and a clean planet where our great-grandchildren can rise even higher than we can dream. Sam, I just, I've been thinking about that a lot. I stood there in Miss Muldoon's classroom in kindergarten with my hand over my heart, looking up at that flag every single day and making a pledge that ended with liberty and justice for all. And I feel like that is the promise that we have yet to fulfill. And that's incumbent upon all of us. And I feel that really strongly in my heart. And I can even feel that little five-year-old Sarah with my hand across my chest and how proud I was to say those words and that they they're not just words you know we gotta live them well I uh so thank you for living them for as long as you have and I hope in the years ahead less hip surgeries (laughs) yes And more one union elections, (laughs) more strong strike votes so that people understand what we're willing to do if they don't do the deal. And, you know, collective bargaining for all until all of us are free. None of us is free. With you leading the pack, I think we'll be all right. All right. Thanks, Sam. Sarah Nelson, pleasure to meet you. Happy Labor Day. our show special thanks to the association of flight attendants feldman strategies and of course sarah nelson to learn more about sarah and how to support her work with the afa visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com on the site you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes if you enjoyed today's conversation i'd recommend our talks with gloria steinem dolores huerta better o'rourke Stacey Abrams, Dr. Cornell West, Anita Hill, and Noam Chomsky. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, and you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. 
The second best thing you can do is review the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. You know, just giving us five stars is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at iHeartMedia in New York City. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Bahid Frazier, Lulu Phillip, Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Snars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mila Bell, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy on this holiday weekend. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.